David, David and Goliath. It, it's like the Mayweather and kind of Pakeo or whatever his name was, the, uh, the guy who just had that boxing match a few weeks ago. It's a massive and very, very well-known event in biblical history. Probably the best known. The kids will know it, I'm sure. But did you notice how much of the chapter is actually taken up with the fight? It's only two verses, really, isn't it? Verse 48, David runs forward to the line. And verse 49, he takes out the smooth stone. Now, I was going to reenact it, and I'm very sorry. I did once do that at youth camp, but I hurt someone quite badly. Uh, I missed my target. Um, I wasn't as accurate as David was. But it's pretty simple, isn't it? It's two verses of battle. And I guess many people do this, and I'm not saying this is right at all, but they just sort of say, well, you've got to work out which one you're going to be. Which one are you, are you going to be the David? Uh, and uh, are you going to, so when the pressures of life come along, when the, when the opposition, when the enemies in your life come, come towards you, are you just going to be a David to take them on? Or are you going to be a Goliath and, and fall down all destroyed? The pressures of life, the enemies that are in your life kind of overwhelm you and that's it. Which one are you going to be? Is it that simple? Is it be David? Is that the message that you and I need to hear? The problem you face with that kind of moralising of passage is, which David are you going to be? The David of 1 Samuel 17 Yeah, the shepherd boy who's the king after God's own heart, as we'll see in a moment, who defeated the enemies of God with a stone and sling. Are you going to be that David? Or are you going to be the David of 2 Samuel later on, 12 and 13? That is the adulterous, murdering, weak king who wouldn't go out to battle and lead his people. Which one are you going to be? See, if you moralise a passage like that, at best you're left with a really confusing application, aren't you? And the problem is, you've, you've actually ignored 56 verses of this whole chapter of 58 verses, and you've completely ignored the chapters before and after of this amazing history. Well, I think what we are going to see is this. I think we're going to see a champion, and that will expose our need for a champion. We'll see a, a perfect model, a perfect leader, and David isn't that but we'll see a need for that because he points to one who is. This is a, an amazing historic episode where God saves his people. Yes, through this champion, David here, but it's a champion who's weak and yet who trusts one who's strong. And this is not a story that it says, hey, now you guys go and be David. That's not the main point here. That is go and trust yourself. God will give you the strength to take that. No. This is a story that encourages us to be humble, to be faithful, to be confident as we trust God. Oh, of course it is a story of action. I hope you enjoyed it as you heard it being read. But it's just a small part of the story. More important, I think, than the action is the thinking behind the action, the heart that drives the action, if you like. Let's get a bit of scene setting if we can uh, before we dive in uh, to the main sort of section of the chapter. Have a look back at first one if you can. You see the Philistines there, they're gathered in Judah. They've no right to be there. Who was going to fight them? Well, of course, it should be the king. After all, that is what the people had asked for. I don't know if you remember two weeks ago, back in chapter 8. If you want to flip back a couple of uh, chapters, why don't you go back to chapter 8, verse uh, six. Chapter 8, verse 6. You remember this, I'm sure if you were here. The people have pleaded with Samuel, they want to give us a king. 
We want a king. Now, despite all that God had done in Samuel and and way back in history, he'd shown that he was powerful. He brought victory over the enemies of God again and again and again. The people still said, we want a king. And Samuel then spelt out throughout chapter 8, didn't he, for about 14, 15 verses, said, hey, look, if you get a king, it's going to be this bad. He's going to plunder your wealth, your crops, your livestock. He's going to take all these things from you. And yet you get to verse 19 of chapter 8. And what do they do again? We want a king. We want a king to lead us. And look what they say. We want a king to fight our battles. And we want to be like everyone else. So God gives them a king. Samuel anoints Saul and the people of God have got their king to fight their battles. But is he the kind of leader... They need all that we need to fight our battles. This is the kind of leader that we should follow. So the people of God, let's go back to chapter 17 now. And you get to uh, verse 3. Look at it. The people line up for battle against the Philistines. And this champion steps out. We know his name. It's Goliath. And the historian who records this, it's pretty vivid, isn't it? Look at all the details that you get of Goliath. Absolutely phenomenal. So we get a, what do we get? A bronze helmet. Probably he's got some night vision goggles, you know, kind of flipped down on there. Code of armor. Look at the weight of it in the footnote. 57 kilograms. I know Sunday's not here, but it's probably like having a kind of like a Sunday strapped to you there, isn't it? it? It's about that kind of weight. Bronze greaves to cover shins. That's pretty important if you're a giant, I would guess. Not that I know what that looks like or feels like. Then we've got a javelin on his back, spear in his hand. This is a formidable opponent, isn't it? Verse 8, look at it. He shouts down to the the people of God, the army there. I paraphrase this, but it's something like, pick your champion. If he wins, we surrender. But if I win, you surrender. And the people, you can imagine the army, they're looking at Goliath and they're looking around on the front line and thinking, hey, we need a champion from from one of our sponges. And you can imagine, like at primary school, do you remember you used to line up in kind of height order in order to pick teams and so on? They're probably looking around, who's the tallest? Who's going to go out and meet this giant of a man? But I want you to, if you can, again, let's just get an idea of who ought to have been there. Why don't you flip back to chapter 9, verse 2. It says there, he, um, speaking of Kish, had a son named Saul, an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. See, the funny thing was that Saul was there on the front line. So why are the people of God you know, terrified? They've got this man, a champion, who's a, foot, a head taller than anyone else. He was a good-looking champion as well. Why are they so terrified? Well, the problem is that Saul, as we've known, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, had disobeyed God on a couple of occasions. If you want to look back, you can look back at chapter 13, verse 13. See, as a result of Saul's disobedience, Samuel has rebuked him and shown him, your reign is coming to an end. Chapter 15, verse 28, that very famous verse, the warning comes again as the kingdom will be torn from him. And Saul, therefore, though he's on the front line, he's terrified. He's a defeated man. He's a scared man. 
Though he projects himself as Saul, the great Saul, handsome, powerful, wealthy Saul, he's turned his back on God and he becomes, if you like, a picture of humanity that should warn all of us, and certainly all the people that we know, of of what it means to turn your back on God. Because in a sense, it's a really frightening place to be, ultimately, isn't it? Because it isn't what we're made for. We ought to be ruling in God's world. We ought to be the king under the great king. But having turned on backs on God, we grasp at power. We try to find security in all sorts of other places and in outward things. But the point that has been made throughout the chapters that precede this chapter is that God doesn't look there. He looks at the heart instead. Just flip back one chapter to to chapter 16, verse 7. As Saul anoints David, it is very clear, as God says, man looks at the outward appearance. And imagine these men on the front line, if you like. That is exactly what they're doing, isn't it? They're looking at the outward appearance of this giant Philistine before them. But look what it says in chapter 16, verse 7. The Lord looks at the heart We know as David anointed Samuel, the equipping spirit of God came upon him and we know it left Saul. He's terrified. The critical thing to remember as we get to chapter 17, Saul still has the crown. The Israelite army, as they look around, they're going, there's our king. They all understand that. The outward appearance is still there. Very impressive. The problem is that the empowering spirit of God is not with him and he's scared to fight this ultimate battle alone, as we should be too. Chapter 7 is an amazing story. It's big giants, there's little boys, stones and slings. We all know it in its kind of, you know, its big picture. And our natural inclination as we look at that is David's got no hope, has he? Little boy, little David. But the Spirit of the Lord has come upon him. And we should initiate that chapter and go, no hope. No hope for Goliath. We know what's going to happen. We've got these two armies. We've gathered on two mountains, haven't they? With the Valley of Elah right in the centre there. We're not far from the Mediterranean here. Got the Philistine army. Their territory was huge. Big strip going down beside the coast there. They were feared people throughout biblical history. Their reign actually goes, it's the longest reign of any kind of opposing enemy of God's people. Right from Genesis through to Zechariah they're mentioned. So prominent was the nation in that area that the Philistines, uh, well Palestine actually derives its name from Philistine. We know that back in chapter 13 that the Philistine troops had more troops than sand on the seashore it says there. And now they've got this champion that steps forward and by outward appearance... He's terrifying. Our natural inclination is to go, Goliath, not David. This man seems to be the champion above all champions. Now, champion literally means a man between two, a man between two armies. And into this strides David. And as we see from the previous chapter, he's the king after God's own heart. I could show you a a number of things. I'm going to show you three things. I want to show you David's concern. It's on your outline there. David's confidence and David's contention. Hopefully we can learn and then apply some of this to our own lives. Firstly then, David's concern. His concern 
is for the name of the living God. Think of what David's doing. Let's dive into the text a bit in the centre there. Look at verse 17. We see he's taking news. He's taking supplies back and forth from front line back into his parents, isn't he? To his elder brothers on the front line there. But at this stage, we see from those verses that he's an outsider. He's a bit of a nobody. Look back to verse 12. It's extraordinary. David's been announced in the previous chapter, but because he's a bit of a nobody, he needs to be kind of re-announced. Look at verse 12. People keep forgetting him. That seems to be the problem. He's part of this big family. He's got his his, uh, brothers one to three. They're on the front line. The eldest three. I don't know what brothers four to seven are doing. They might have been doing GCSEs or something. I don't know what they were doing. They're back at home with mum and dad. But little David, I was listening to a talk on this a few weeks ago, and this very, very posh British gentleman was saying, little Davy boy, and he was sort of going back and forth. But we'll call him little David because that's what he was. He was a little boy in comparison to his brothers. What's he doing? He's running errands. He's a very easily forgotten character at this stage. In verse 17, we see that mummy has made a picnic for the big boys. He's also put some cheeses in for the commander. So it's a very British story, isn't it, at this stage? There's little David with the big boys. He slips in to, to see his big brothers. You can imagine them hoping that the cheeses go for the commander. Well, you know what it is, the, the keeper of the supplies there. You can imagine the big brothers hopefully go, what's he going to bring? Mummy's going to put a chocolate cake in for us. It's kind of secret seven at this time, isn't it? It's very exciting. Little David asks who this Goliath chap is. He overhears one of his declarations. And, And David's biggest brother, eldest brother, gets quite embarrassed. And you can imagine that as a family situation, can't you? Eldest brother getting slightly embarrassed by the kind of the other enthusiasm of the youngest brother. The point is, though, here we get... David, the one who trusts God, because his reaction to what Goliath says in defiance of God is a reaction of one who does understand, trust God, believe in God, have a relationship with God. He believes there's a living God who acts to save those who trust him. And he does so even under this huge pressure. This is a situation with this huge giant, formidable opponent. And yet still in those circumstances, great pressure. David trusts God, the living God. And David is angry, isn't he? It seems that, that the enemies of God were winning. David is outraged. He took Goliath defy, defying God as a terrible thing, a blasphemy. See, look at David's concern. It is for the name the reputation, the honour of the living God. David is interested. Notice the reward of verse 25. The guys, their eyes are lighting up, aren't they? The wealth and the wise and the, the relief from taxes. But you see, for David, this isn't a matter of opportunity. It is a matter of responsibility. Goliath is defying the living God and his people. Something must be done in David's mind to uphold the name and the honour of the living God. Goliath defies God again and again and again. It's a phrase which is repeated more than any other in this whole chapter. The men of Israel, they look at Goliath, they recognise he's a threat, but they think, hey, 
we could be wealthy if we dare go out and beat this man. That's what they're thinking. All those wives, the tax relief. What are they doing? They're thinking essentially horizontally, aren't they? But what does David do? How does he think in this situation? Well, his thinking is vertical. It's a work of the Spirit. David says, what about the name of the living God? His concern is that way, not that way. And that is at the heart of this chapter. See, everything that David does flows from his concern for the name of the living God. It, it's there, it's kind of three kind of major times. Verse 26 is there, verse 36, and then verse 46 as well. He says, there is a God in Israel. David comes into the camp. He sees the men just think about themselves, their opposition, their opportunity. It's all this kind of horizontal thinking. Am I going to be able to get better, more wealthy than those people? Whereas David comes into the camp and thinks about the living God. His his concern is for the living God. He thinks vertically. I wonder how we apply that to us. I wonder when when you sit at work, when you go out to perhaps a coffee shop with some friends and so on, I guess that most of the people around you, if not all of the people around you, uh, they're not Christians. I wonder what your greatest concern at that stage is. Some of us will have moments like this every day and they will challenge us. And they will test what our greatest concern is. The temptation in some conversations is to doubt and to hide Just like Saul, and just like his army. But what does David do? He thinks vertically, and he says to himself, doesn't he? What about the name? What about the reputation? What about the honour of the living God in this circumstance? However pressing the opposition. He wants to honour God. It is a greater concern for the vertical rather than the horizontal. That's our first point. David's concern for the name of the living God. Second point, David's confidence. It's in the living God. Let's just turn our eyes back to uh, verse 36, if we possibly can. I think this is pretty critical in the the whole chapter. So verse uh, 36, let me just find a second. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. See, we see there that David's confidence is, is in the living God. The Lord, verse 37, deliver me from the poor of the lion and the poor of the bear, and he will deliver me from the Philistine. He trusts God. God has always delivered him. And the contrast with the Israelite army is really stark. See, God has delivered them on a number of occasions. But they stood on this front line, quaking in their boots. You give Saul a bit of the benefit of the doubt. I'm probably wrong in that. But look, you know, he goes kind of halfway, verse 37, doesn't he? He says, go and the Lord be with you. He kind of like, you know, we'll we'll kind of support you in this. Following verse, he tries to dress David up. Which again, I think is a kind of natural, it's a kind thing to do when sending someone out for battle. But he displays a kind of partial confidence in the Lord. At best, being incredibly generous. That's often true for many of us, isn't it? Just partial. Just partial. David goes out to fight. 
And Goliath treats David, doesn't he, like his elder brothers have kind of treated him. Look at verse 43 and verse 44. You know, Goliath is thinking, well, if, if the bell goes of round one, this might just take a few seconds. Look at me and look at this tiny little fellow down here. Goliath was probably thinking as he looked at David, see those vultures? He even mentions the birds in the sky. He's thinking, you're on the menu for supper. That's what he's thinking, isn't he, for those vultures? Uh, I'm not going to mention much of it, but the five smooth stones of verse 40. There are more doctrines on those verses than you could possibly imagine. What they signify, are they the five first books of the Bible, the five wisdom books? Well, basically they're five smooth stones. Let's work on that principle, that they are five smooth stones. And they were used, one of them at least, to take down Goliath. It's a simple bit of doctrine there, but let's work on that. David believes though, doesn't he? And his confidence is in the living God. The Lord has delivered him before, verse 37. And he's confident in him for this occasion. His concern, again, is a vertical concern. His confidence is a vertical confidence. He trusts God so much so that he's willing to risk his life. Listen to what David says, because the children's Bible stories often focus on the action, but that is just the couple of verses that I mentioned at the beginning. The words here, I think, matter so much more. Verse 45. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. So he says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. Massive thing, strength, outwardly impressive. Yet I come against you with the Lord Almighty. David says, you look stronger. You look better equipped. But you set yourself against God, Goliath. Therefore, you're stupid. And therefore, David is probably thinking, looking at Goliath, just to flip that illustration around. He's probably looking at the vultures up there and said, I'm sorry, mate, I'm not on the menu. I've got God on my side. I think you might be the main course today. See, despite what the situation feels and looks like, however big the struggle, David is willing in the situation to risk his life, confident in the Lord's provision and in his ultimate protection. See, David's confidence is in the living God. And if we spend our days looking around kind of horizontally, we will find our confidence is in spears and swords and javelins or intimacy, possessions and power. We want kings. We want security like everyone else, don't we? But the problem is, I think we all recognise, we're not going to risk our lives on those things. Deep down, we all know that they're ultimately very fragile. David's concern, again, is a vertical concern. His confidence is vertical. And how are we ever to speak to those around us about the living God effectively if all they see in us is a horizontal concern, a horizontal confidence? I wonder where your confidence lies. 
And perhaps a more pertinent question for each of us will be this. I wonder where your friends perceive your confidence is being placed. David's concern is for the name of the living God. David's confidence is in the living God. And thirdly, David's contention is for the living God again. See, David comes in the name of the living God. Therefore, we should uh, read the whole story in a sense that it's going to fade complete. It's, it's going to happen, isn't it? Goliath will die. It's an inevitability. The fight itself, it's so understated, isn't it? Just a couple of verses. And then a kind of summary verse because it feels it's over too quickly and we'll better summarize what's happened in verse 50. It's not like some big scene in a, in, a, in a film, is it? Where you kind of like, you know how you get two people, you know, kind of fighting it out and you're kind of wondering, as one sort of overwhelms the other for a little while and then the other one overwhelms her and you kind of, oh, what's going to happen? Who's going to be the winner? It's nothing like that. We know who's going to win. David's contention is for the living God and it's in his strength and his power. There will only ever be one victor. Israel then chased the Philistines down the coast. They finished them off. Essentially the point there is God will ultimately win. Why would we contend for anyone else? But it is interesting. I don't know if you noticed how one champion, David here in this story, one champion in weakness as David was, leads others, that is the army, to get going for the Lord. To to do the right thing in obedience to him. Champion David contends for the living God and leads God's people to do likewise. And he commits himself in his weakness to a battle serving God in his strength to bring a victory for God. Now you know who's done the same. You know where we're heading here, don't you? Because we follow a champion who has contended to win the ultimate battle, to bring an ultimate victory. And his name is Jesus. And I do hope you trust him. Like God's people here, we must serve and follow our champion. We must commit ourselves to a battle that will never be lost because salvation has been won in his strength. Let me wrap things up if I can, last uh, couple of minutes. Remember, I want to impress on the fact that the application of a pastor like this is not the moral. It's not that he's saying, go and be David. So don't go nip down to the wandle and five, five smooth stones and get a sling out and think, who can I take down, my enemies? And so, no. We see God saving his people through a champion. Yes, his name's David. But a champion who's weak and yet who trusts one who is strong. And of course, David foreshadows, of course, great David's greatest son, namely Jesus Christ. Who when he hung on the cross, Colossians 2 verse 15 puts it this way. He says, he disarmed the powers, the authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. See, in Christ, all our ultimate Goliaths, the ultimate powers and authorities have been vanquished. So don't try and be a David in that ultimate sense. But it is a very, very sensible thing to be in David's army. That is great David's army. We should be like the soldiers in a sense who chase in the end, contending, confident in our champion. If you're a Christian here today, you're united by faith to the great champion, the Lord Jesus. And therefore, please rest assured that the victory has been won on the cross. And the rest of our history should be spent following 
that champion who foreshadowed, is foreshadowed here by David. Who we see is his concern was for the name of the living God, his confidence is in the living God, his contention is for, again, the living God. And David, we've seen, is equipped and appointed for the task and the promise of the gospel is that God will equip us as we honour him following our champion. One last thing, very briefly. I don't know if you've noticed, it's a little bit of an aside, but I thought it'd be helpful as we close. You will have noticed that up to this point in 1 Samuel, David's kind of, he's lived in his obscurity, hasn't he? It's very private in chapter 16. And what I want to say, I thought it was a really helpful application as I was reading through the commentary I mentioned last week, actually. It pointed towards this. It just said, of all the things that he learned as he approached that front line, he'd learned those in private. That is, he learned to be concerned for God's name away from the battle line, away from the limelights, in obscurity, as a shepherd boy in the field for his father. He learned to trust God with the poor of the lion and the poor of the bear, and to be confident in God away from the limelight, away from the front line, in a field as a shepherd boy for his father. And he learned all of that in private. See, if you're looking as you, as you leave here today for some spectacular empowerment from God to go out and slay your Goliaths, realize, please, that you have all the power necessary in your hand and in your heart. That is, learn like David. Remember and recall from daily coming to God's word that you ought to be concerned for his name. Learn to be confident in his strength. However weak you feel, however overwhelming your circumstances, these things are learnt in private as we come to God and his word. And as the Spirit illuminates that word, and drives it into our hearts that we, might by God, that we might be guided by the Spirit. I guess our prayer should be that we will learn and let the Spirit do His work in our hearts and our lives. That we would follow, that we would honour, trust and contend for our champion, the Lord Jesus. The great Goliath slayer. The great David's greater son, our saviour, our king and our friend. It is Jesus. I hope you know and trust him. And I pray that he is your champion. Let's pray as we close. Just a few words uh, from a sermon preached about a mile and a half away in 1875. Charles Spurgeon said this, as he ended his sermon, he said, on this passage, he said, this church numbers nearly 5,000 members, not quite there yet. But if you are five, only 5,000 cowards, the battle will bring no glory to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray as we look to this wonderful champion, this example of David, that we would not try and emulate him, but try and trust the one who he points to, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Heavenly Father, he is our great champion. He is the one that has taken down the ultimate giants of our lives, of the consequences of our sin and death itself. Heavenly Father, may we not be cowards for the Lord Jesus Christ and bring him no glory. But may we be a church, though we are small in number in comparison to the church I just mentioned, but may we be a church who goes out in his strength for his glory. Amen.